Amen. Good morning, church. Good to see you. My name's Ross, and as always, just a joy and a delight to be able to share God's word with you. Hebrews 8 is where we will be. We are continuing in our uh, verse-by-verse study of this great epistle, which, just to remind you, was written in the early in the second half of the first century, and it's written to a scattered bunch of Jewish believers who are beginning to experience real, manifest, dangerous persecution for their faith, and who were rightly, we need to kind of get into their world a little bit, who were rightly trying to orient themselves in the ongoing story of God and his people. As, as Jews, they, they knew where to orient themselves in redemptive history, right? But as this new movement of Jewish Christ followers who believed the Messiah had come, they, they were struggling to go, where, where do we fit? Right? What, what is God doing in this moment now? Was Jesus really who he said he was? Because we thought the Messiah was going to lead us to ultimate victory. We thought he was going to reestablish Israel. He was going to protect the temple. He was going to bring God's rule and reign. Now we were going to get to rule and reign with him. Now they were right. They were just looking at the wrong horizon. Right? Uh, they, they were looking at an ultimate horizon, thinking that that would be fulfilled in the first arrival of the Messiah. But their world didn't seem to run according to the rule of their resurrected king. Have you ever experienced this? We talk about the sovereignty of God, right? And we go like, God is in control of everything. The text today is going to speak about Jesus sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then you look at the circumstances in your life and you go like, it doesn't seem to be very controlled, right? It doesn't seem, when we're honest, in moments of deep suffering, pain, anguish, confusion, um, uh, pushback, rejection, brokenness, our own sin, we go like, but where is this sovereignty? (laughs) Where is this rule and reign? Uh, Where is this kingdom that you said would never end, right? And so sometimes we too look at the wrong horizon. And so I want us to be empathetic with the first recipients of this letter today. They received it just by the way as a sermon to be read in one sitting. And so if you go like, man, Hebrews is complicated. Imagine I just stood up here, read it, closed in prayer and said, thus saith the Lord, right? You would go like, I'm looking for another church. This is the the weirdest church, right? And so we we are dum-dums. So we're taking a year and a half going through it with a microscope going like, "Uh, I'm not sure, but maybe it means this, right? Um, They received this as a sermon and we should be empathetic towards them. And because they, they were trying to figure out what you do when everything that you had centered your faith and your culture in then seems to have been eroded, right? You see, some of the things that you will see referenced continually in Hebrews feel very abstract to us. They feel, if we're honest, maybe even a little obtuse to us, like fun for theology nerds, right? But weird things are fun for theology nerds, right? Um, They've all got blogs about it, including me. Um, uh, But fun for them to dig into Melchizedek, right? But for the rest of us, we're like, that feels very distant from me. But what we must remember is these were central issues to the first readers, and that we too have issues that are like them. Not exactly the same, but we too have some wrestles and struggles in faith that were like them. These were central things that held their entire lives together. Things that rooted and anchored their faith and their experience and their culture and their practice of their belief. What kind of things? Things like the priesthood. Imagine your whole life. You've journeyed to Jerusalem, right? And you've offered up sacrifices through an appointed priest on your behalf. And that has been the way that you know that you're in right standing with God. 
Now you believe the Messiah has come and you go to your new pastor and you go like, are you our priest? He's like, no, Jesus is your priest. Like, well, where, where is he? Right? How do, how do I offer sacrifices through him? No, no, that's done. Jesus is the answer. He's already offered sacrifices once and for all. Imagine how disorienting that is. You're like, what do I do for forgiveness of sins? No, he's already done it, right? The answer is Jesus. They were like, okay, well, what about the tabernacle and the temple? What's the answer? Jesus is the tabernacle and the temple. And you're like, well, how are we all gonna fit in? I, I, I don't really understand, right? That's a strange building, and, but that's what it is, right? Things like the Lord, well, do I need to obey the law that I've obeyed for my entire life? No, Jesus fulfills the law. Things like the history of the covenantal promises of God that have shaped them from infancy, now they say, no, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the covenantal promises of God. You don't need to rely on the covenant of Noah or of Moses, right? Or even the one of Jeremiah that he speaks of today because it's fulfilled in Christ. Can you imagine how disorienting that is? They're like, so wait, the answer to everything is Jesus, right? It's like Texas evangelicalism, right? The answer is always Jesus and tacos, uh, but, but, but mainly Jesus, right? Um, but for them, they're like, so literally the answer is Jesus, and the congregation was like, it's Jesus, right? Law, Jesus. Temple, Jesus. Priesthood, Jesus. They're like, okay, I'm starting to get this, but this feels quite strange to me. Imagine if we had some deeply held cultural and religious assumptions totally uprooted, because of some new perspective on faith. It would be a little disorienting, right? How disorienting was it when it was like, okay, we can't have church services because there's this thing called COVID, right? We can't gather. For a while, it was awesome because church in our jammies was super rad, right? Then after a while, you're like, man, I never thought I would say this, but I miss other people. Um, And I miss being around them and in a space with them. Like even the annoying ones, I miss just their annoyingness, right? And we start to realize we need, it was disorienting, right? Now imagine if this foreigner now stood up and said, okay, guys, there's some things that have held your culture together forever, but Jesus replaces them. You're like, what are we talking about here? I'm like, college football, no longer a thing, right? Jesus is better than college football. You're like, hey, dude, go back to where you came from. Um, I don't understand because that's a bedrock of our culture, right? Now, that's a flippant example, but these guys were experiencing that on a, like a major life scale. The very things that held their weekly rhythms of life together, they're now saying that Jesus has fulfilled and they don't need to do anymore. They've got no idea how to process it, Right? And so friends, as we study Hebrews, it's true that it isn't always easy to connect the dots in the midst of all of those details. In fact, many scholars have considered Hebrews the most complex work in the New Testament, which makes me question why we chose to teach it, Um, but it's been marvelous, hasn't it, right? It makes it the most difficult to preach and teach in a way that lands up being helpful for modern people. And that's my wrestle today, is that I can explain this text to you. My wrestle is, how do I make you apply it to your life? Because here's what I worry about in the way that we've set up church. And this is self-defeating, I understand, because I get paid to do this, right? But for many of you, I'm not sure what you you need is another clever sermon. (laughs) You need to actually take the sermon, the understanding of the text, and apply it to your life. But we need to do the hard work of saying, this was their world, here's your world, here's how the two connect together, right? We are prone to the same fallenness, the same folly, the same frailties, the same betrayals, the same... uh, 
faithlessness that they were, and there's gotta be a way to connect our world to this. So, fortunately, we've got a couple of things for you today, right? It's not just gonna be a Ross rant, praise the Lord. Um, uh, I believe anything could happen over the next eight pages of notes, but, but, but I believe. Firstly, we've got this for you. This is a, a guided study and discussion guide, right? Hebrews guided study and discussion guide. It's 10 bucks, we're not making a sense off of it, right? This is not a profiteering. This is not me trying to establish a college fund. Um, none of us make money if that costs $10 to print, that costs you $10 to buy, right? If $10 is an obstacle, just take one off the table and just say, Ross said I should, all right? And, um, but please get one of these if you don't have one. This will help you do pre-reading for each of the texts coming up so that you'll be able to sit here on a Sunday and go like, I think I've got a better chance of being able to connect their world to my world, right? That, that's our hope with that. Some very smart people um, worked on that and that's not self-serving because I had very little to do with it, right? Uh, secondly, what I'm gonna do today is something that we've been doing as we teach students. When I teach teenagers, uh, I teach and then I leave some space for them to reflect. We're gonna do that today. And so there's gonna be some awkward silence at the end where I'm gonna give you some reflection questions in the hope that you don't just hear another sermon, go like, ah, oh, that was awesome, or that was terrible, or can we get Holland back, or whatever the particular thing may be, right? And then go to Rudy's and do absolutely nothing about it. What a waste of an hour and 15 minutes of your life that would be, right? And so let's wrestle in together to the entire chapter of Hebrews 8, right? That was a nerd laugh. That just, that just wasn't planned, but that my inner nerd emerged because I go, oh, you're doing the whole chapter of Hebrews 8? And people who haven't read Hebrews 8 are like, that's not funny. People who have are like, that is hilarious, all right? Here's what it says. Now, remember, this is a sermon. This makes me feel so much better about preaching because you know when he, when he says the first main point? Chapter 8. You know how long this sermon must have been. <laughs> now the main point of what is being said is this. Can you imagine being the first year? They're like, finally, put it on a slide, right? Like, so something for me to write down. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Friends, I'm in danger today. I feel like a speck of cosmic dust trying to explain the scale of the universe. Don't let these words wash over you. Who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, right? That's how you know you're in right standing with God. They do it on your behalf. Therefore, it was necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. They brought goats with them. What does he bring? Himself. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest. Oh, the irony of that verse. We'll deal with it. Since there are those offering the gifts prescribed by the law. These, the law, the tabernacle, the priesthood, right? These serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. What a verse. What an image. As Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle. For God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Right? Remember as the people uh, leave uh, Egypt and they wander in the wilderness. What do they need? They need a dwelling place of God amongst them. They need the presence of God manifest amongst them. And so what do they need? They need a tabernacle. And it's very carefully um, constructed. Right? And everywhere they go, the tabernacle goes with them. And God's presence goes with them and before them. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry. (laughs) 
And to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. Now friends, listen, that feels abstract again. This helps you piece your Old Testament and your New Testament together. Very important idea in the discipline of biblical theology. But finding fault with his people, here's what he's saying. He sends Jeremiah, who's about to quote, um, saying that you guys didn't keep the covenant, and so there's another covenant coming. And the big idea of Hebrews is Christ fulfills that covenant, right? But there's fault in the, in the covenant that was in place with the people of Israel. And so it needs to be replaced with another covenant. Look at what Jeremiah prophesied. See the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, with God's people, not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. I showed no concern for them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant, right? That covenant was based on, I do this, you do this, we stay together, you guys haven't done this, right? For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother or sister saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. There won't be classism or sexism in the kingdom of God, the, the ways that we stratify um, cultures and contexts and hierarchies. No, no, anyone can get in on this covenant. That's how good it is, right? For I will forgive their wrongdoing <laughs> and I will never again remember their sins. By saying a new covenant, this is big. He has declared that the first is obsolete. And what is obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. What a text. Let me pray quickly. And then just three observations, right? Lord, help us. That is so dense, so complex, so magnificent. I feel, Father, just totally unable to explain the magnificence of your son in the context of this text. Help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to see just a glimpse. Just a glimpse of your son seated at the right hand of you, the majesty on high, in glory, ruling and reigning, making it all okay. Help us not to go back to previous ways of justifying ourselves before you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, in the spirit of the writer of the Hebrews, I want to summarize the main point of what is being said, right? I love his first line. Now, the main point is this, right? Uh, uh, that's, remember, to this group of people trying to orient themselves and Jesus in relation to redemptive history. His big idea, his main point is, Jesus is a better priest who provides for you a better place and who secures for you a better promise, Jesus is a better priest, right, who provides for you a better place and secures for you a better promise. And this is a continuation of what's been said so far in the epistle, right? We zoom out a little bit to the broader horizon of the whole letter and we can summarize it in three words. What's the theme of Hebrews? Jesus is better. <laughs> 
The, 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 the Hebrews needed to hear that in order to keep going. We need to hear it in order to keep going. Jesus is better. And so don't go back to anything that's not as good. Don't go back to any previous means of justification or righteousness or of trying to orient your life in God's promises. Don't go back. Jesus is better. Now listen, Christians say a lot of cheesy things. And there's a chance that this just becomes another three words of cheesy empty jargon, of catchy song lyrics for us to sing, right? Which they are. But rather, friends, this is something so deeply held and so necessary. It's a firm conviction that we must come back to as believers in the resurrected Christ, that he is better than anything or anyone else that we would look to in our quest for meaning, in our quest for truth, in our desire for comfort, in our longing for love, in our missions of mercy, in our, in, in our requests for redemption, in our hope for atonement, right? In our longing for hope or acceptance is better than anything that we would go to. Look at the wonderful way that the very talented, my friend, Jake Riddle, who helped us put together this guide. Look at, look at how he says this, right, in our Hebrews guide. Um, I, I think we'll have this up on the slide. It says, the book of Hebrews is clear. The superiority of Jesus towers above everything. I'm going to read these questions just a little bit slower, give you some time just to think about them in real time. What is the thing you most want in life? Jesus is better. Who do you turn to when you need help? Jesus is better. Have you tried and failed to fix your guilty conscience? (laughs) Jesus is better. What do you think can fulfill you? Jesus is better. What do you think will save you? Jesus is better. What is the thing you think you can't live without? Jesus is better. What lifestyles or worldviews entice your imagination? Jesus is better. If you think there is something better out there for you than Jesus, then you don't understand Jesus. Your highest thought of him is not high enough. Whatever you think he is, he is better. Okay. What are some of the tangible ways that he's better? This is going to be the the crux of the sermon today where we said he's a better priest. So what? So we don't go to anyone or anything else to justify ourselves before God. Right? That's what the priest did. We said that he provides a better place. So what? So we don't go looking to any other place to experience the comfort and joy of union and peace with the divine. We said that he secures a better promise. So what? So we don't go looking for the security of promises in the temporary, which we know can't deliver on the promises that they offer us. Let's zoom in a bit on the text. Let's look at these three. Jesus is a better priest, right? First one. Look at what he says. The main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it was necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest since there are those offerings, the gifts prescribed by the Lord. Now, I don't wanna spend long on this, right? Because we've spent weeks on Jesus as the better priest. It's been the theme of the last few Hebrew sermons and indeed the last couple of chapters. The, the, the text deals with Jesus' priesthood in detail. And this is just a summary statement of this whole section, right? And last week, Halem reminded us of Jesus' ongoing and current work as a priest. And I can't preach it better than that, right? It's mind-blowing to consider his role. He isn't, listen, currently sacrificing for our sins. Just think about that for a second. 
When we sin, what do we feel like? We feel like we're crucifying Christ again, right? That Paul even says that if you, if you sin thoughtlessly, if you just keep doing it, right, and, and, and you cheapen grace, that there's a danger that in your mind that's what you do. But sometimes in my mind, I think that's what's happening. Like Jesus has to pay for that sin all over again. No, no, his sacrificing work is done. He is now interceding <laughs> for us, praying for you in your weakness. What a magnificent thought, right? But as we wrap up this section and this concept of Christ's priesthood, I just want to consider three things briefly from the text this morning of Christ as our priest. Uh, firstly, consider with me, right? I, I warned you it's going to be dense, so just stick with me. Firstly, consider with me his finished work. Now, we spoke about this quite a lot, but the posture of Jesus is important. He's described here, and in Psalm 110, and in Hebrews 2, right, as seated. (laughs) He's sitting down, right? And where? At the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now, that seems like, okay, cool, we sit a lot. I like sitting. Sitting's great, right? And sat the whole day yesterday um, and watched Texas teams dominate, right? Amazing, right? But look at what Donald Guthrie said. He said, the fact that our high priest sits at God's right hand enhances his status compared with that of Aaron's line. No priest was allowed to sit in the Holy of Holies. When they went in there, right, with a rope tied to their ankle, and they went in to the holiest of places, you know what was the most disappointing thing? There's nowhere to sit. Why? You can't sit here, son. Get your work done and get out. Why? Because in that limited time, you're probably going to sin in your mind. And so you've got to go do this atoning work and then you've got to get out, right? There's nowhere to sit down because that work of sacrifice was never finished. But now when we see Jesus as a priest, what's he doing? Sitting with the nations as his footstool. (laughs) We're told in Psalm 2. He's not sitting, but he's sitting well. His work is finished. His work of sacrificing for our sins. Friends, do you ever wonder if you're good enough to stand before God? If you're a Christian, you shouldn't. If you aren't yet a believer in Jesus Christ, you should wonder and wonder a lot. But if you're a Christian, you shouldn't wonder if you're good enough to stand before God. You're not. But he has made you. And it's finished. (laughs) He's seated. He's not on the edge of his seat going, I wonder if that particular saint will make it. I doubt it because they'd be super stupid when it comes to sin. Right? He's not up there biting his nails, wondering if we'll make it to the end. He's going like, no, no, I've paid the price for that one. Done. Secured. Let's sit down. Let's enjoy the finished work. Whatever the things that you will try to make you feel like you have right standing before God, those are your lesser priests that you are tempted to go back to. Guilt, shame, legalism, deceit, religious adherence. These are the priests of our day that even us Protestants engage in all the time. Secondly, note with me Christ's unrestricted access to the Father. Even the priests of old didn't have unhindered or unconditional access to the holy presence of God. They were separated from the holy place and could only enter under very strict conditions. 
But we're told Jesus is a minister of the new and true tabernacle, which we'll explain in a second, which means that he doesn't need access to God's presence. He doesn't have to knock. There isn't a password. There's no rope attached to his leg, right? You no longer need special access to God's presence because Jesus has gone in before you and he tore the curtain, right? So that the glory of God can enter out into all the nations of the world and so that sinners can enter into the holiness of God through the way of Jesus Christ. What a thought. You have access to the majesty on high. I have access. Jesus grants it. He tore the curtain simultaneously inviting us sinners to come near to a place where they could never previously go. And also showing that the spirit of this holy God would be sent out to inhabit, to tabernacle in and amongst those same sinners. Do you ever wonder if you too In your sin, failure, disappointment with yourself, do you ever wonder if you can experience the presence of God? Whatever it is that you think would have to be done in order to allow that, that is probably the inferior priest that you're tempted to go back to. You know that one of the things that the early Christians were disappointed in, they were disappointed that Christianity, because it believed so much that Christ had torn the curtain, and that, and that access had been granted. Christianity lacked extravagant ceremony and Christianity lacked extravagant spaces <laughs> in its earliest days. We messed it up, of course we did, right? We gold-plated everything, right? But the early Christians were like, so wait, we get to meet with God in our house? They're like, yeah, what? We get to meet with God in the temple courts? We don't have to go in the holy, holy? yeah. We get to get, meet with God at work? <laughs> You do. It's unbelievable. He's granted you access. What a thought. Well, what about ceremony? Do we have some kind of ornate ceremony? No, you've got wine and bread and water. (laughs) Why? Because you get to meet with God in the ordinariness of your everyday life. Why? Because we believe that the real ceremony is in heaven. (laughs) And that Jesus has given us access there. And so we don't need some sort of cheap imitation. Thirdly, just look with me at his unquestionable qualification. The irony of this is just so rich in my mind this week. I think Jesus must have smiled at the irony of many things he encountered in his life, right? When he walked around, it's just like, that's stupid. That, that's not what God's like. Oh, man, I would know. Um, right? There must have just been so many times. One of them might have been the fact that he was not allowed into the holy place in the temple. Have you considered this before? You know, Jesus spends a lot of time at the temple. You know where he spends his time? In the outer courts. Why? He isn't allowed to go in. Why? He isn't from the Aaronic line. And yet he's the one who's ultimately paying the price for all of those sins, all of those goats and, and animals that were slaughtered, all of that blood, he was, gonna, he was gonna pay that credit account, as Holland said to us last week. He was gonna say, actually, my blood's gonna pay that in full. And what did religion say? Yeah, but you still can't come in here. <laughs> he was like, it's good, God's coming out, don't worry about it, I don't need to go in, right? Yeah, you guys are, are fine. And what did they say? Priests needed to bring something with them, a sacrifice. They couldn't go in empty hand. What does Jesus bring? himself friends he wasn't appointed as the son of Aaron he was appointed as the son of God he didn't qualify as fit for service through ritual cleansing he qualified as fit for service through a pure and obedient life 
He didn't bring a sacrifice that was pleasing to God based on its adherence to the law. He brought the ultimate sacrifice to God of himself based on his fulfillment of the law. That's why, as we said last week, he's able to save to the uttermost. I'm running out of time, but look at what Raymond Brown said. This, this makes a difference to sinners. It makes a difference to my heart. Listen, he says, here is a clear word to any Christian in despondency or despair. We may feel crushed, dejected, bewildered, or broken, but our eternal salvation has never depended on our vacillating moods or our changing circumstances. (laughs) Christ has entered the heavenly sanctuary once and for all. He offered his blood for us. There he has appeared for us, and now he is praying for us. We are ever remembered at that throne, and our names are enrolled in heaven. This is our confidence. Our faith is grounded not in what we are or in what we have done, but ever and always in what he is, God's perfect son, and what he has done through his perfect eternal sacrifice. Is it starting to stir your heart? Secondly, he isn't just this better priest, but he provides for us a better place. Right, look with me again at the, uh, at the text from verse five. But first, let me just say, for the recipients of this letter, they would have grown up knowing that part of what it meant to be the people of God was to have a reverence for and a security from the place that God dwelt and where heaven and earth intersected. For the people wandering in the wilderness, the tabernacle. For the Jewish people in, 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 in first century Judaism, right? It was uh, the temple in Jerusalem and the land that had been secured for them, the nation of Israel. And now as Christians, they were worshiping at home and in small gatherings with other believers and there was increasing concern for the safety and the sanctity of Jerusalem's temple. And that concern was valid because within a decade, that temple would be violated, destroyed, knocked down, never to be rebuilt to its original status, right? And so they're like, wait, that was our place. The nation of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, and the temple on the hill, that was where we found our security, our identity as people. Now, what do we do with this, right? Well, the writer of the Hebrews says, these, the temple, the tabernacle, the priesthood, they serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle, for God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Friends, the tabernacle and the temple were hugely important in the identity and history of the people of God. By God's design, they were good things. A lot of the Old Testament, you guys made it through a lot of your reading plan, right? We're in October now. And so you've got through a lot of the things that are basically dedicated to describing the designing, the building, and the protecting of that space, right? The temple and the tabernacle, they mattered. They were good, but they were not the main thing. What were they? A copy. Now listen, copies are great, right? They got me through high school. Um, They just aren't the main thing. Right? They point to something else. If you come to my house, right, which you're always uh, welcome to do, um, not, not always, but most of the time, uh, welcome to do, right? above my fireplace in my living room, I have some Picasso sketches at my house. I love them. They're beautiful. They're a series of single line sketches of doodles of animals that he did on scrap pieces of paper and that were collected. Right? Now, do I have the originals? Uh, no. I'm not that kind of pastor, right? Uh, Totally different kind of branch of evangelicalism, right? I bought 
copies of those doodles. You know why I bought them? Ikea, right? Because I'm that kind of pastor, right? And I bought them for like 49 bucks framed. And I was like, excellent. And they're good. They make me smile every time I look at them. But they're not actually Picasso. Even though they're a fair reflection of his work, we invited some friends around for a barbecue at our house. And uh, they had two teenage sons. And I saw the sons in the lounge. And then I saw them walk out like quietly um, to their dad on our porch. And I was like, Yes, Picasso. I was like, I've got Ikea Picasso, son. Just calm down, right? You're still getting cheap sausages today. It's not that kind of party. Um, and so, but I love them. They, they, they make me smile. They point to the genius of Picasso. They're not Picasso, right? The temple, beautiful, magnificent, a copy. It was always supposed to be a copy, and it was always supposed to be a shadow. What do shadows require for them to exist? Light. The actual substance of something. The shadow is not the substance. There's a great line in a really underappreciated Switchwood song, right? That says, I'm a crooked soul trying to stay up straight. I'm like a dry eye in the pouring rain. While the shadow proves the sunshine. The shadow doesn't exist without the sun, right? It has to have the sun. And so the temple is a shadow, amazing, right? It stood as a shadow of the light source of God's majestic goodness and his dwelling with his people, all right? Okay, this is a little abstract for us. Let me change the perspective a little for our context. What are the things that make us feel like we have a place? They're good things. They're just shadows, they're copies, which means if they're taken away, you won't be destroyed <laughs> because the real substance still lasts. You know what makes me feel like I have a place? My family, my home. But now that can become a worship issue for me. I can start to worship the, the security of that to such an extent that I'll defend it to such an extent that if something comes along and shakes that, my faith goes with it. Why? I'm believing that that is the substance. That is the place. That's not the place. That place is a copy, <laughs> a shadow, or of our eternal home. What makes you feel like you belong in society? Can I just provoke you for a bit? Don't know why I ask at this stage, it's been six years. Um, <laughs> evangelical Christianity in the West is at a tipping point. It's locus of power and influence is being transferred from the US, right? And in some places it's being deeply eroded. Just as the people of Israel look to the temple as a place of security and comfort, we too look at places of comfort for us in society that make us feel like we're comfortable with where we belong in the world. These things are good things, but they're copies. <laughs> they can't deliver on the promises that they offer. Like what? Like our identity as Americans. What a great place to live. It's a copy. <laughs> at best. <laughs> best our security is having christian thought and action be respected and protected in society which is part of the bastion upon which we've built a culture great awesome good thing shadow our philosophies of education wealth flourishing <laughs> good things shadows at best god invites us into a place of eternal security but make no mistake if we do that right, that place will be one of temporary discomfort. <laughs> a place where we should always feel just a little homeless because we aren't yet home. <laughs> this is not the place. It's a good place, not that place. Last one. 
Jesus secures a better promise. I don't have time today. What a theme. But the covenantal promises of God shaped and dictated the history of his people. Briefly, let me just summarize your scriptures for you, right? One of the ways to read the scriptures is to read it through the the series of covenantal promises that God makes to his people. Now, make no mistake, the, the nerds argue over which of these are actually purely covenantal promises, which are just circumstantial, right? But broadly speaking, uh, these are the promises that, that, that hold the Bible together, the covenants, right? The Adamic covenant, the one made with Adam, right? In, in the garden. And there's the Noahic covenant. I'm very grateful for it, right? I'm not going to flood the world like that again, right? Look at the rainbow in the sky. The Abrahamic covenant, which says you, you're going you're gonna to give birth to a nation, Right, and through that nation, many in the world will be blessed. All the nations in the world will be blessed. The Davidic covenant, right, that one from your line will sit on the throne of Jerusalem forevermore, right? The people can't keep any of those covenants or any of those reminders of those covenants. So, what does God send prophets to do? What's the theme of prophecy? You broke the covenant, another covenant is coming. Another covenant is coming, it's coming, right? The Messiah will come. Then, what does Jesus do? He comes and he says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Can you imagine the audible gasp in the room when he does that? He's saying, it's fulfilled. The whole thing you've been waiting for, for thousands of years, when you drink this cup, it is installed, right? As the new way to see right standing between man and God. This is my new covenant poured out in blood. It's given to you, right? And in so doing that, he says, hey, remember what Jeremiah promised? That's fulfilled in me. I don't have time, but go home and read the, the, this text, right, in, in Hebrews from verse 10 to verse 12. Uh, what is being promised in that covenant? The law won't be purely external to us. You won't have to interpret the law, understand the law from a distance. It'll be written on your heart. Why? The Holy Spirit's going to dwell you and give you a new conscience, a new understanding of God's law and what he wants you to do. Secondly, God will be our God and we will be his people. Oh. And nothing will be able to change that. Thirdly, the gospel will go forward to people from all tribes and tongues and nations and social classes and ethnic backgrounds and even gentles like us who, Gentiles like us who live in previously unknown lands will get to be recipients of this great redemptive work. You know what's cool about that promise in Jeremiah? One day there'll be no more evangelism which for some of us is the greatest news ever because we're terrible at it, right? We try, you're like, uh, you want to talk about Jesus? They're like, no, we're like, okay. Uh, like that's pretty much the strategy. <laughs> My dad, I knew that was a bad idea, right? <laughs> One day we won't need to do it. Why? The, the new covenant will be fully realized and everyone in eternity will know, will know. Lastly, what does it say? It says God will grant and secure our forgiveness and he will become willingly, listen, please listen, willingly, and wonderfully forgetful of our sins. (laughs) Not due to deficiency, due to the power of his promise, which he won't turn back on, and he'll never break. Friends, this is part of the wonderful covenant that Christ has secured for us. Do you know that you remember your sins more than God does? You thought about that? Now, this is not us saying like, oh, I live a no regrets life. No, no, there's many regrets. It's okay to reflect on that. But God's not recalling your sins and using them against you. He's not doing it. Just won't do it. Look at what Dr. Tony Evans said. He said, it's an unspeakable joy to know that the sins you've committed are forgiven. <laughs> but God's promise doesn't stop there. Through Christ, tomorrow's sins are wiped away too. 
Everything you have done, past, present, and future, is covered by the cross. And if you really understand the greatness of that grace, you will be motivated to live to please the one who saved you. You will transfer from a have-to life to a thank-you life, leaving you free to experience and enjoy the power and privilege of your relationship with God. Okay, that's a lot, and that's been 38 minutes. As I said in the beginning, Hebrews in sections can be really hard to apply to life so far removed from its original context. And so I'm gonna just leave the spirit to do some work with us. I've got some reflection questions on each of those three points that I'd love for you to consider before we go from this place today. Instead of just like, high five, good job, now I get Hebrews eight. Let the spirit apply it, massage it to your heart so that you understand what are your priests What are your preferred places of comfort? What are the promises that we return to in order to feel right with God, but that actually end up eroding the joy that can only be found in Jesus? Here's the first one. Let's talk about priest. I'm gonna leave this for a minute. It's gonna be uncomfortable. We're not used to silence in church, which is ironic. Whose acceptance or rejection has an outsized impact on whether you see yourself as loved by God and others? Sing for a second. Who's able to build you up or bring you down in an outsized way? You're probably going back to them as some kind of priest of comfort and acceptance in your life. Second question on priest. How free are you to repent? (laughs) And how free are you to do so in front of others? Knowing that Christ is interceding for you, having already justified you. (laughs) If you believe that that Jesus Christ intercedes for you right now? Honestly, friends, if you really believe it, we couldn't give a rip about our reputation in the world. (laughs) Secondly, place. What are the things in society and culture that cause you the most anxiety? Boys and men, if you want to know what an idol is, go to what causes you the most fear. Everywhere I go in this town, people are so scared of the trajectory of society. I get it. There's some crazy stuff. Is it outsized in your life? Does it lead you to sin? Anger? Secondly, on place, what are some of the things you look to in order to secure your acceptance and appearance of success to those around you? Oh, this doesn't apply to us in Austin. What if God took them away? Last question on place. When was the last time you thought about the wonder 
joy <laughs> and security of heaven. Just spend a minute just reflecting on it now that Jesus is there preparing a place for you, having already secured access for you. I don't think we think about heaven enough. So think about it. Your trajectory, the trajectory of your life if you're a Christian is eternal security with Jesus. It ends well. How does that change your posture now? Does it? It should. Lastly, promise. What law of God has been impressing upon your heart to obey which you've been resisting? Remember the new covenant? It's not gonna be just about obeying external laws. He's gonna write the law on our heart. What law of God is he writing on your heart? A way to love your neighbor, a way to forgive someone, a way to display mercy, a way of radical generosity. Which one is currently pressing at you? Your conscience is there, but it's, it's getting quieter because you've ignored it for a while. Which law of God that is written on your heart do you need to obey today? Holy Spirit, help us. Give each of us one. Lastly, <laughs> what sin are you remembering more than God remembers? <laughs> Take it to him now in repentance and the joy of God's willing forgetfulness. I'm gonna leave that for a minute and then I'll pray for us. majesty on high with your son Jesus Christ seated at your right hand <laughs> not sacrificing interceding and ruling and reigning and preparing <laughs> a place for a sinner like me what a thought Lord I acknowledge I acknowledge that I create priests of my own imagining, of my own making in the world to justify myself so that I feel better before society and before you. Oh, forgive me. Keep me from that folly. Lord, I acknowledge that I have deep places of comfort that I've extended into a form of idolatry where I feel like if that was taken away from me, I'd have nothing to live for and that we wouldn't be okay and that I wouldn't be okay. Forgive me, Lord. Good things, good things, Father, but help me to see them as copies and shadows. Lord, I acknowledge that sometimes I go back to the old covenant. I acknowledge that sometimes I have covenants with you of my own making. Oh, Lord, I promise I'll never do that again, so therefore, can we be okay? 
<laughs> when what I should be free to say is, Lord, I'm probably gonna do that again and we'll still be okay. So help me not to do that again. Oh my goodness, that's better. Help us to see you. Just a glimpse today, just microscopic pieces of cosmic dust looking at the universe, trying to understand what we're seeing, that your son Jesus is better than anything we could come up with. Help us to believe you in his name.